Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going in focus where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we'll discuss use it or lose it, securing the use of the $13 million plus federal estate gift and GST tax exemptions before sunset, featuring Jay Scharf and John Kiley, both, both of McDermott, Will, and Emery. Today's show will provide an overview of the federal estate gift and generation skipping transfer tax system and timely strategies to maximize the use of the exemptions. We'll also discuss the current federal transfer tax landscape and legislative proposals, as well as cover important planning opportunities and reporting requirements that advisors to high net worth individuals and families must take into account. Today, we're privileged to hear from Jay Scharf and John Kiley, both attorneys at McDermott, Will, and Emery. Jay Scharf is based in the firm's Miami office and advises high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals, families, and family offices. He delivers customized strategies to help his clients attain their personal and estate planning goals and minimize income and transfer taxes. Jay guides clients through the design and implementation of sophisticated estate plans with a focus on preserving a family wealth, family wealth in a manner that meets each client's unique goals. A significant part of Jay's practice involves trust and estate administration. He advises clients in all aspects of internal revenue service and state tax compliance with respect to trust and estates, including the preparation of federal and state estate tax returns and defense of fiduciaries in estate and gift tax audits. John Kiley is based in the firm's New York office, where he focuses his practice on advising high net worth individuals and families on a full range of estate planning and gift planning issues, including the preparation of wills, revocable trusts, spousal, lifetime access trusts, grantor retained annuity trusts, life insurance trusts, and qualified personal resident trusts. John frequently lectures on diverse estate planning topics such as gift planning for qualified small business stock under Section 1202, the income tax aspect of estate planning, international estate planning, options for illiquid estates and significant estate tax liabilities, and proposed legislative and regulatory actions that could affect wealthy individuals and families. Today, Jay and John will speak on use it or lose it, securing the use of the $13 million plus federal estate gift and GST tax exemptions before sunset. And with that introduction, I'll now turn the program over to John and Jay. Uh, Thank you, Jonathan, for that introduction. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on uh, bright and early in the morning after this holiday weekend. Uh, nice snowy day here in uh, in New York. Uh, good time to go through use it or lose it. So uh, before we get into the uh, the portion of our program that will go over how exactly we use it or lose it, it's important to have a background understanding of the tax law. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 temporarily doubled the estate and gift tax exclusions and generation-skipping transfer GST tax exemption amount and index them for inflation. Now, to give you some context before we get into the current numbers, uh, the, uh, in the under the current rules, we have an exemption of 13610000 and that is the exclusion for both state tax 
gift tax and GST tax exemption amount. The gift tax annual exclusion amount is now $18,000. And to the extent that a person goes over those exemption amounts, the tax is imposed at a flat rate of 40%. Uh, now, to give you some context uh, for those numbers and, and why we feel they are uh, so significant and so historically generous, uh, back in 2004, the federal estate tax exclusion amount was a mere $1.5 million, and the gift tax exclusion was a million, and the annual exclusion amount was 11000 That increase of 11000 to 18000 is solely the result of inflation adjustments over that period. Fast forward to 2017, the exemption has increased to 5.49. Uh, 2018, the next big seminal event, those exemptions double uh, to 11,180,000 before we get to the current uh, level of approximately 13.6 million that we have as of January 1, 2024. Now, major caveat to that 13.6 million exemption. That exemption will sunset on December 31st, 2025, at which time it will be cut in half as of January 1, 2026. So the way this works is it goes back to the 5.49, then there are a series, the series of inflation adjustments that would have applied over the intervening years, bringing that to at least 6,805,000 plus another uh, inflation adjustment uh, to bring it up to whatever it will happen to be uh, in on January 1, uh, uh, 2026. Now you might wonder why on earth would there be this, this crazy increase in, in the exemption to just be followed a few years later by it being cut in half. Uh, this is a uh, classic congressional uh, accounting magic uh, when they are scoring the revenue cost of legislation such as this they assume that all of these sunsets do in fact come into place uh, which allows the legislation to look uh, cheaper at least on paper and the problem is kicked down the road and potentially it gets resolved uh, unless there is the uh, quite foreseeable possibility of of uh, inaction in uh, in DC. So how exactly do we go about calculating this tax? Well, it's a funny tax. The federal estate and gift tax exclusion amounts can be thought of as an integrated running tally. Now we went over at the beginning, the exemption is now 13.6 million. Suppose John Doe makes a gift of 5 million in 2022 and dies in 2024 with $12 million in assets remaining. So is his estate free and clear? Because the 12 million is certainly under the 13,610,000. The answer is no, because the gift amounts are added back and the tax is computed on 17 million and the tax will be 40% of the 3,390,000 that exceeds the exemption amount or 1.356. As shorthand, you can think of lifetime gifts as using up a portion of a person's federal estate exclusion. You can think of the $5 million gift 
as having used 5 million of the 13,610 exemption, leaving 8,610,000 in exemption, and there being a 40% tax on the difference between 12 million and 8,610,000, getting you to that same 1,356,000. So with this paradigm, why make a gift? Well, one reason is that post-gift appreciation escapes future tra uh, transfer tax. For example, if gifted property is worth $20 million in 2024, the 15 million in appreciation that would have been in the taxable estate has escaped transfer tax. Uh, and that would be, in that example, about $6 million in transfer tax savings. There's another critically important reason, and it relates to this uh, scheduled sunset of the exemption. There had been a concern that the that if the exemption was cut in half, that there would be a clawback if a person had fully utilized their exemption and then died when the exemption amount uh, was lower. Fortunately, uh, the IRS has clarified that such a clawback uh, will not take place. So it, it provides the opportunity to utilize the exemption without that lingering concern that there could be a problem in an in estate tax administration. Also, don't forget that states want their piece of the pie as well. There's a state-level estate tax in certain states. Uh, in New York, there's a 6,940,000 estate tax exclusion and a progressive rate structure that technically starts at 3% and is 16% on amounts in excess of $10,100,000. However, that is not as generous as it sounds. There is a rapid phase out of the benefit of the exemption for estates that are slightly in excess of the exemption, and an estate that is more than 5% over the exemption amount will receive absolutely no benefit from the New York exemption amount. For example, an estate worth 6,930,000, just 10,000 under the limit, owes no estate tax. But an estate worth 7,300,000 will owe $678,000 in estate tax, an effective tax rate of over 100%. This is referred to as the New York estate tax cliff. New York does not have a gift tax, uh, so a lifetime gift can make a lot of sense. If someone is hovering on that margin, they're in the mid, they're seven and a half, eight, a little over that. If they're trying to bring themselves under that cliff amount, watch out though, because gifts in excess of the annual exclusion amount within three years of death are brought back into the New York taxable estate. Uh, Connecticut has both a gift tax and an estate tax and currently matches the federal exclusion amount of 13610000 Now, New Jersey has eliminated their estate tax. Uh, however, there is an inheritance tax that can apply. Uh, fortunately, spouses, descendants, parents, grandparents, and stepchildren are exempt. So who is not exempt? Well, siblings, uh, in-laws, nieces and nephews, cousins, and just garden variety friends are, uh, are subject to the inheritance tax. Uh, Florida looking uh, attractive on a nice snowy day like this also does not have an estate tax or an inheritance tax. 
Uh, now that we have this uh, primer on the, the background of the, the, the tax law, I'm going to turn it over to Jay to talk about some of the really neat planning strategies that can be utilized to take advantage of these exemption amounts and preserve these important tax exemptions. Thank you, John, uh, for that great overview. And thank you, everyone, for joining us this morning. Um, just to put a little bit in perspective, the taxes that John mentioned uh, for a New York resident between the federal estate tax and the New York estate tax could be an effective 53% tax rate. Meaning if somebody has $100 million estate, $53 million of that will be going to the government without adequate planning. So taking that into consideration, I'll go through briefly some of the popular techniques to secure the use of one's $13.6 million exemption. And then there's more sophisticated planning that could help, help reduce taxes on assets that exceed the exemption. As I'm going through these techniques, please keep in mind that generally these strategies can be implemented using not only cash and marketable securities, but also real estate interests, many other types of investments and family businesses. So the first technique is the use of spousal lifetime access trusts to secure the use of the exemption. Or if somebody used a portion of his or her exemption, the slash can be used to secure the use of the remaining exemption. As John mentioned, gifting also removes those assets entirely from the New York estate tax base as long as a donor lives for three years after making the gift. The way the slats work is that the grantor creates an irrevocable trust, but the grantor spouse is a beneficiary of the trust. Typically, the trustees would have full discretion to distribute income and principal, and the spouse can be either the sole beneficiary during the spouse's lifetime, or typically the grantor's descendants are also discretionary beneficiaries of the trust. The benefit of the slide is that it provides the grantor the opportunity to secure the use of the grantor's exemption while still providing some degree of access and control to the grantor by one of two ways. First, since the spouse is a beneficiary of the trust, distributions of trust property can be made to the spouse and make its way to the grantor if necessary. Secondly, the grantor can have the unilateral right to borrow from the trust. As my mentor says, the slats are the darling of estate planning. So this is a technique where you really get to have your cake and eat it too. However, there's still a small chance that this is at risk of being eliminated sometime soon. As we know, it's on the minds of Congress, which I might touch on later in the presentation. So it's a good idea to complete transfers to SLATs as soon as possible if SLATs are the appropriate vehicle. Also, spouses can create SLATs for each other as long as they are non-reciprocal, which is critically important. So both spouses' exemptions can be used and both spouses can have access to the trusts. So these SLATs are really great vehicles to secure the use of the exemption and still have access to the trust assets. Another powerful technique to build on the slat, or it could be a standalone trust, is the dynasty trust. The dynasty trust is intended to last for multiple generations, and the assets will continue in trust by allocating GST exemption to the trust on a timely filed gift tax return. This would allow the trust assets to be protected from estate, gift, and GST taxes for multiple generations. So if you run the numbers on a dynasty trust with eliminating estate tax on multiple levels, you gain at least a generation or two of additional wealth just by preserving the taxes. So 
the trust, the dynasty's trust, can also provide great creditor protection and could also be a technique to avoid premarital agreements for your children and grandchildren. The next technique involves life insurance trusts. A life insurance trust is generally an irrevocable trust that allows the trustees to own and maintain one or more life insurance policies on the grantor and allows the trustees to pay premium using the trust assets. We also have a bit more creativity when using islets in that, if appropriate, we have them funded with fund interests or other income-producing assets that generate cash flow to pay for the premiums within the trust. Generally, the primary benefit of the life insurance trusts is that people tend to think that life insurance is tax-free. It's not really tax-free. It's generally income tax-free, but it's still subject to a state tax. So the life insurance trust allows the life insurance policy and the proceeds to be excluded from the grantor's taxable estate. The life insurance trust beneficiaries can also be a spouse, so it can be a slat, as long as the policy is a single life policy. If the policy is a second to die policy and the spouse is one of the insureds, then it cannot be a slat. So it's very important to remember and we see this sometimes not complied with. So it's really important to remember that if you're dealing with a second to die policy, that the spouse is not a trustee or beneficiary of the trust, as that would create an estate tax inclusion issue. Also, very importantly, in order for the life insurance trust to work and keep the policy out of the grantor's estate, the trust needs to have the policy issued to the trust initially. Or if the policy already exists, there are ways of getting the policy into the trust with little to no gift tax or use of exemption. The third technique is the use of a grantor-retained annuity trust or GRAT. The GRAT is a trust to which a grantor transfers an asset that's intended to appreciate, and the grantor receives an annuity over a minimum of two years that's equal to the fair market value of the asset being transferred to the GRAT on the date of the transfer. So the GRAT allows you to basically freeze the value of the asset, and all the appreciation passes to the remainder beneficiaries of the GRAT after the annuity term without using any of the grantor's estate and gift tax exemption because the grantor is taking back an annuity equal to the fair market value of the assets transferred to the trust. There is a risk, however, if the grantor dies during the annuity term, then the grant assets are includable in the grantor's estate. Some of the great benefits of the grant is that it's a statutory trust so that if there's a gift tax audit that adjusts the value of the asset being transferred to the grant, then under the treasury regulations, the annuity being paid back to the grantor is self-adjusted. So there would be no additional gift tax in the event of an audit. But it is critical that the initial valuation of the assets is a qualified appraisal for federal gift tax purposes. Recently, the IRS took the position that an entire grad would be disqualified, resulting in a huge tax liability because of a defect in the appraisal. Also, when funding these trusts with real estate interests, you need to be mindful and analyze any real estate transfer tax costs because the annuity can be treated as consideration for purposes of the real estate transfer tax. The next technique is the ability for the grantor of a grantor trust to engage in leveraged sales with selling assets to the grantor trust. Generally speaking, this means selling an asset to a grantor trust in exchange for a promissory note. And this does not use a grantor's exemption because it's being sold for its fair market value and it's not being gifted. So this works if either the grantor has exhausted his or her exemption, or for other technical reasons, the grantor cannot give the interest in question. And since the grantor and the grantor trust are the same income tax owners for income tax purposes, there is no gain recognition on the sale. 
from an estate tax standpoint, all the future appreciation of the asset being sold to the trust grows outside of the grantor's taxable estate and within the grantor trust, which is hopefully a dynasty trust. So it maximizes the benefits of the grantor's exemptions and transfers the future appreciation outside of the grantor's estate for multiple generations. Here too, when dealing with real estate interest, you need to be mindful and analyze any real estate transfer tax costs because the sale and the note, even though it's being made to a grantor trust, can be treated as consideration for purposes of the real estate transfer tax. So these are very big picture, very effective techniques that should be carefully considered and if appropriate, be implemented as soon as possible. If time permits, I will run through some of the recent Green Book proposals made by the Biden administration that puts some of these strategies at risk. Now I'll turn it back to John to discuss gift tax reporting. Uh, uh, thank you, Jay. So let's say uh, a client or you have implemented one of these fantastic uh, planning strategies. Next step is filing a gift tax return because a taxpayer is obligated to file a gift tax return if they use any portion of their exemption amount. The gift tax return form 709 is due on April 15th after the year of the gift and that deadline can be extended by six months. Fortunately, filing for an extension of time for to file a personal income tax return automatically puts the gift tax return on extension. The gift tax return is also used to claim the allocation of a taxpayer's generation skipping transfer tax exemption amount. Cautionary note, do not rely on the return itself for a proper GST tax exemption allocation. A rider will need to be attached that makes a formula allocation to take into account that values may change upon audit. A taxpayer and their spouse must file gift tax returns if they wish to split gifts in order to take advantage of both of their exemptions. This is true even if it's merely annual exclusion gifts. Gift splitting is a tax fiction that treats a gift from one spouse as being made from both of them so that they can each use their annual exclusion amounts plus their full exemption amounts. So what does a gift tax return include? Well, cash is of course the simplest item to report. Okay, a little more complicated, transfer stock in a closely held corporation. We're all used to seeing brokerage statements that say what the stock was at the end of the day. Is that the value? If it's closed at $25 today, you might be surprised that no, it's not. Uh, the gift tax value will be the average of today's high and low trading prices. This is a common thing that's uh, often done incorrectly on gift tax returns. A gift of real estate will require an appraisal from a qualified real estate appraiser, which must be attached to the return. The interest in a closely held entity will require a business level appraisal, which will consider whether valuation discounts could apply. That business appraisal starts by determining the full value of the business and then determines if a percentage of the ownership is worth less than a pro rata share of the full value of the business, taking into account 
discounts for a lack of marketability and lack of control. Lack of marketability takes into account that there's no publicly traded market for a minority interest in a closely held enterprise, even one that is very successful. Also, with lack of control, you are subject to the whims of the controlling shareholders absent egregious misconduct. And even then, you have to prove it. Uh, and so it is. there are real economic reasons why a, a minority interest that doesn't have control uh, is, in fact, worth less than a pro rata share of the company. Now, suppose that, uh, a client is told the appraisal is going to cost X dollars. They say, that's outrageous. I already know what the company is worth. They go ahead uh, and insist on filing a gift tax return without any supporting appraisals for the real estate or for the gift of the minority interest in a closely held business. The taxpayer marks their calendar and feels pretty good when three years have passed and says, all right, I'm out of the audit period. Is that taxpayer, in fact, free and clear if they made it to that point? Well, watch out for the adequate disclosure rules. If the gift is not adequately disclosed, then the statute of limitations on assessment never begins to run. The failure to adequately disclose a gift may be raised on an audit of an estate tax return. At that point, the taxpayer, who may have been the best witness to support a legitimately low value, is dead, and the relevant records may be missing. It is very difficult to get financial records that go back more than six years from a financial institution. The taxpayer's uh, heirs may then end up paying an unnecessary amount of uh, transfer tax in addition to substantial professional fees negotiating the resolution of the audit. Also, another cautionary note, appraisals take time and business appraisals typically take months to be finalized. Taxpayers should not wait until November 1st, 2025 to start thinking about appraising assets and making gifts. It takes a number of months to gather the information the appraisers will need and to get those uh, appropriate appraisals. Uh, you do not want to be in the situation of having to guess about whether you have gone over the exemption amount. While there are formula methods to try and avoid uh, uh, accidentally giving uh, an amount that's over the exemption amount, those methods carry some their own risks and it's really better uh, not to go there. Uh, now I'll turn it back to Jay again for some quick thoughts on some of the other legislation that could potentially be coming down the pike. Thanks, John. Um, just to piggyback on John a bit, these transactions that I mentioned are are relatively painless type of strategies, and they're very effective, but they're really only as good as to report them on the gift tax return properly, and they hold up in an audit. So what John presented really helps uh, close the loop on, on the strength of these strategies. Um, we have three minutes left, so I'm going to run through briefly um, showing you how these strategies that I mentioned, the SLATs, the Dynasty Trust, Irrevocable Life Insurance Trust, the GRATS, and sales to intentionally defective grantor trusts are at risk um, by being eliminated by Congress. So the time to act is now 
if they are appropriate vehicles for you or your clients. So the first item on, in the Green Book, and there are more, this is just a couple ones that leap out of me, but gifts or inheritances now of appreciated property um, is proposed that they would be realization events for tax purposes. So somebody wants to gift 100 shares of Microsoft that's now trading at $200 and they originally bought it for $150, that gift will be a trigger event, realization event and result in $50 of gain takes a lot of the benefit out of gifting. Secondly, there would be gain recognition on unrealized appreciation of assets just sitting in a trust or partnership or another non-corporate entity. If they're just sitting there for years and haven't been subject to a recognition event within 90 years, then the government would automatically apply a deemed realization sale and would charge capital gains on those assets, even though they're not being sold. And good luck coming up with liquidity, liquidity to pay those taxes when the asset isn't sold, but it's considered to be sold. Um, another big one in the real estate industry is to eliminate 1031 like-kind exchanges for real estate for gains in excess of $500,000 or for a joint return of a million dollars. A 10-year minimum term for grads. Right now, there's a two-year minimum term for grads, which makes it fairly easy. And there's no minimum percentage for a remainder. Under the Green Book proposals, will be a 25% minimum remainder, meaning a 25% minimum gift or exclusion amount. Um, we have one minute left. So the last item is gain recognition on leveraged sales with grant or trust. The last strategy I mentioned was selling assets um, to a grantor trust for a note. And I said there would not be any income tax because it was a grantor trust um, to grantor sale. Well, under the Green Book proposals, this would be a realization event and subject to income and capital gains taxes as appropriate. Um, just want to thank everybody for, for joining us today. And um, Jonathan will mention our contact information to please reach out anytime with any questions or comments. Thanks again. Thank you, John and Jay. So many of the financial planning areas lend themselves to procrastination. If you don't start saving for retirement today, perhaps you can do it tomorrow. Same with college planning or setting up a will or investing in general. While procrastinating in these areas is detrimental to building wealth, there's no hard deadline so folks can keep kicking the can down the road and theoretically, eventually, they could get around to doing it. However, when it comes to the topic discussed today, there's a very clear deadline called the sunset, which is at the end of 2025. So if you are a person of means and would like to plan ahead by using these favorable planning opportunities, the time, the time to do so is today. Naturally, engaging with a competent attorney like John and Jay or someone of their caliber is a prerequisite. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.